We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hi, this is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut. And we are so excited to bring you another edition of Women Worth Knowing mm-hmm. because we actually, we we kind of really like these women. They become our best friends. They are friends, definitely. After all this time talking about them, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, not only that, like when Jasmine, she'll speak and teach. She's a teacher. I I speak at different places and um, do a Bible study at my church. And I find that these friends that we've talked mm. about on this podcast they come up. They totally do. Yeah, their they, stories always apply to some situation. <laughs> they do. They they just do. And again, as I said before, they become our friends. So I'm really excited because uh, I used to live in England, and Jasmine's um, sister lives in Scotland, and her mom and dad lived for quite a while. Yeah, like in, 20 years. 20 years yeah. in England. Yeah. And so— um, we're going to go to England Yes, um, for the next two episodes, <laughs> maybe even three. And oh, four. I think I, there's, I have another one, too. Ooh, yes. So, yeah, at least a few. <laughs> four episodes. Oh, this is so exciting. Yes. And um, these people are especially close to our hearts mm-hmm. because we live there. Yes, exactly. And they're very known in England. Mm-hmm. So I know who we have today, but I'm so excited. We have the second wife of Henry VIII. Yes. The notorious. Notorious. And probably somebody that most of you have heard of, Anne Boleyn. So, yes. I, I read about Anne Boleyn, though. I I just read this new book that's just come out on her. And they said that Anne Boleyn is either held up as a heroine of Reformation or she's considered— um, like the notorious femme fatale yes, that broke yes. up the marriage. And I think what a lot of people don't realize, and we'll get into this, is that Henry VIII already wanted a divorce mm-hmm. from Catherine of Aragon mm-hmm. because she had failed mm-hmm. to give him a male um, yeah. heir. heir. Yeah. And she couldn't have any more children. Yeah, this is it's a it's a lot more nuanced, I think, it than is. people realize. Yes. So yeah, because you're right. And we're gonna definitely get into that and address why people think that. Yes. So yeah. So yes. yes. Anne's story. So, you know, we've been looking at a lot of people involved with the Reformation, a lot of women that the Lord raised up, and sometimes he would raise up reformers' wives and common folk, right? We've looked at some of those, but we've also seen members of Europe's aristocracy and even royalty who would take a stand, right, for the uh, for sola scriptura, the authority of God's word, salvation by faith alone, um, those, you know, key principles that we hold to because they're just, you know, truths from, from the Bible. So, uh, in fact, we've seen like a lot of uh, French gals, you might remember in some of our past episodes, but there were a few women also in the English royalty that played a role in the Reformation. So that's what we're going to be starting out with here for the next few episodes, like Cheryl said. So one historian, his name was Paul Zoll, he actually calls these women theologians because uh, there's just a striking theological nature in some of their writings. I think you'll get into that with Catherine Parr. I will. Some of these she wrote yeah. three books. And she Very was prolific. the first known um, female authoress in England. Wow. So we'll get to that. Yes, exactly. So, I mean— And she was also a wife of Henry VIII. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It just so happens. Yes. So— uh, Zal points out that they actually viewed everything that happened to them, and I mean, a lot of things happened to these gals, through the lens of the providence of God and the lens of the furtherance of the Reformed religion. So, you know, you see even in their own lifestyle, their, the, you know, their actions, their writings, that they had a sense that God had raised them up 
to do this, you know, for the sake of the gospel, really. So um, before we actually get into it, Anne, um, I want to give a little historic context to these gals. And some of this will probably be familiar if you've ever watched period pieces on, you know, that time of history. But um, just to kind of get us on track here, um, they were part of what was called the Royal House of Tudor, right? The Tudor family. That was the monarchical line that started by with Henry VII. Uh, following something called the War of Roses, which might also be something people have heard about. The War of the Roses was in the 15th century. Between the... Uh, the Yorks and the Lancasters, and it just, anyways, <laughs> this big convoluted, I think there was a, what was the other family that was involved in that? Anyway, there were three families. It was a big mess. So Henry VII emerges victorious as the King of England, and then his line continued most famously through his son, Henry VIII right? And his kids. And it ends, the Tudor line ends with his daughter, Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth, exactly. Um, and the Tudors ended with Elizabeth because she was known as, uh, some you might know, the Virgin Queen, <laughs> right? She had no kids. And Which, so- Virginia, the state of Virginia yes, is named, named after. after her. Exactly. So um, as a result, and this kind of ties in with a previous podcast, her cousin James would begin the Stuart line after the Tudors ended. And Cheryl mentioned him in her Scottish podcast because he was- James the sixth of Scotland and James the first of England, so he ruled both. And uh, as a result, of we that. have the King James Bible from because of him. James. So hopefully, there's a little yeah, there's a little thread there, folks. So hopefully that ties things together here. <laughs> so, uh, like I said, there are a couple women that played a prominent role from the Tudor dynasty uh, in the Reformation, and so. Yeah, Anne is the most well-known, the most controversial, as many people know. Uh, Henry VIII was a pretty infamous ruler. Ultimately, he had six wives. In fact, uh, my English friend Debbie, Cheryl knows, Debbie Arnold, she said that in school in England, when they're studying the Tudors, they do a, have a little memory device to help them learn the fate of all of Henry VIII's wives. And do, do you remember what it is? Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. So there you go. No. Repeat after me, everyone. <laughs> Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. That's how they learn what happened to all of them. <laughs> So we're going to look at number two, which kind of gives you an idea of what's going to happen to her at the end. Yes. <laughs> We've already... <laughs> yeah, we kind of got there. Yeah. So, and Cheryl will be doing number six. So... I will. Giving you like little, yeah, preliminaries Who almost uh, died also. Oh, she almost had... Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yep. Intrigue. So much. So <laughs> Henry obviously was a promiscuous creep. That's pretty <laughs> obvious. I think anyone would say that about him. You know, it's interesting, but, though, about Henry, though, is he was spoiled. His brother was so supposed spoiled. to be the king. Yes. And so Henry was kind of like the errant one. Uh, he learned to play. He was a fantastic musician. Interesting. Um, in fact, some people say that he wrote Greensleeves. Oh, wow. That's, mm -hmm. wow. The, which we would know as probably what child is this, right? Right. Isn't that the— yeah, Right, the, when the lyrics were changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was— um, a musician. He was a charmer. He was just spoiled. Yeah. But he wasn't expected to be king. So having been used to getting his way. Oh, yeah. You know, his brother dies. And all of a sudden, it's not that he's even trained to be king. Like, yeah. You would be in training for years and years and years, groomed. Self-discipline. Right. Yeah. To be king. He had none of that. Interesting. So that's, that's part of your problem. Yeah. You know? That is a big part of the problem. That helps explain a lot of what went on here, how this all went down. So, um, Yes, he was promiscuous and just, like I said, he had he just was very self-indulgent, you know. Uh, oh, definitely. He just, you know, I mean, <laughs> ate a ton, had a lot of women. He was just a, you know, kind of a yucky guy. Anyway, lived live, live for pleasure. But 
part of the reason he even started this line of marrying all of these women was because he was obsessed with producing a male heir to the throne. That was kind of his goal in life. So actually, he was married, rather happily married, really, for over 20 years to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. She and was the widow right, of, of his, his brother, who was, who was supposed to be king. king. So yes, exactly. So we got a lot of going on here. So he had married her, and they were, you know, fine. They had a very, you know, uh, pleasant marriage. But as time went on, some things started to bother Henry. First of all, she had five miscarriages, and the only one surviving child was a daughter Mm -hmm. named Mary. Mm -hmm. And this was a problem. She's starting to get older now. She's getting into her 40s, and so it was becoming clear. And she she, was older than Henry. She was also older than him, yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so he's thinking, gosh, we're not, not, you know, time's ticking here. We got... Plus, we're on the clock. Plus, he wasn't even faithful to Car- uh, no, Catherine. No. There were all sorts of women in yeah. the court. And he very was, common for these yes, kings. But as you he was, said, yeah. he was a, a roamer. Yes, he was. Not a lot of discipline a philander. in his life. Yes. <laughs> um, but he could tell at this point, you know, he could read the writing on the wall. She's probably not going to have a son. And so he starts to get worried. So in 1527, this is quite a while before Anne and all of that, he appeals to the Pope for an annulment of the marriage with the excuse <laughs> that it was unbiblical for him to be married to his brother's widow. Yes. It's like, wow, what a convenient yes. pang of conscience yes. he yes. suddenly has. Suddenly. Oh, I just feel years, so bad. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the Pope actually kind of avoided this whole subject for several years, not for spiritual reasons or anything, but political. we got to remember, folks, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the church and state and the political intrigue that was unfortunately a big part of And this church is decisions. when he was sending Thomas Wolseley. Um, who built Hampton Court. Right. Who was in negotiations with the Pope mm-hmm. to make this happen. They're trying to mediate all of these situations. I mean, and, you know, everybody's trying to walk on eggshells, make sure everybody's happy. It's going to be, you know, okay. So the Pope kind of tried to defer this whole situation because divorce is not allowed by the church. And so, that's right. well, unless it was convenient politically, but that's another story. So it just so happened during this time, can, you know, what? how about this? He, Henry becomes smitten with a young woman in his court named Anne Boleyn. While this is all going on, while he's already seeking the divorce, he sees, he meets Anne. And Let's just, Anne. Yes. Are you going to talk about Marguerite? Oh, yeah. We're yes. going back to that. So, okay. yes, I will backtrack to that. I'm kind of like setting the table with all, all right. the Henry gnarliness. I'm getting it. So Anne, <laughs> Anne had become refined while she was in France, and I will get to more of that in a second. Um, but because she had gone and studied there, she knew how to kind of play it cool, maintain her independence. She also didn't want to just be another one of Henry's mistresses. Like Cheryl said, he was already very promiscuous. I mean, that's what a lot of rulers did. And so these women were kind of discarded like, you know, like a piece of eaten fruit, honestly, once they were done. And so uh, and sadly, Anne's sister Mary had actually already been one of Henry's mistresses. So she saw what happened and how that went down. And she's like, no, I'm not going to. Go there. So, according to uh, one historian, Linda Telford, she said that Henry's advances really put Anne in a difficult position and probably were unwanted. She didn't want to be a disposable, again, a disposable woman in his life. Um, and not only that, but her true love was a man named Henry Percy, and the higher ups had broken up their relationship. There's a whole bunch of stuff involved with that. Unfortunately, it just wasn't politically expedient. And so, um, I think earlier on, Henry and some of the other, like I said, uh, aristocracy had actually been involved in breaking up that relationship. So Anne, you know, never like loved Henry. She always loved, uh, sorry, she never loved Henry VIII. She always loved (laughs) Henry Henry Percy. Percy. (laughs) Yes, that was her man. But uh, she also knew this was um, a dangerous game to keep the king at arm's length like this. 
You know, really, again, we're talking about a man who's used to getting everything he wants, who has never been told no. But what ended up happening was this actually made, because Anne played hard to get, it actually made her more alluring to Henry um, because he had never been denied before. And so his desire for Anne and desire for an heir drove him even harder to obtain the annulment from the Pope. So he keeps pushing for this. And this actually goes on for a few years. I think some people think Anne just showed up and then all of a sudden all this happened. This went on for a while and she's trying to hold her ground. Yes. And he was actually in divorce proceedings before Anne ever came on the scene. Yeah, but it was so he sticky because of the Pope. Exactly. He was looking. He was, totally. So finally, in 1533, again, this is, what, six years after he first was starting to try to get the annulment, Henry finally had the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, void his marriage to Catherine against the Pope's orders, and he and Anne got secretly married. And so um, he's in a conflict, obviously, with the church. And so to remedy this, I don't know if it was much of a remedy, really. It was more like a, a, a split. Henry issued the Act of Supremacy in 1534, which made the king the head of the church in England instead of the Pope. So this is where we get the Church of England, or what we would call That's the Anglican right. Church now. So this was actually really huge, and this set a really important precedent that from now on, the faith of England's monarch would dictate the faith of the nation. So this is huge because later we're going to see, like, most of the future monarchs would end up being Protestant, right? So Well, they would put, after Mary, Queen of um, Scott, I'm sorry, after what Bloody we Mary. call Bloody Mary, they would put a what do you call it, like an addendum or, uh, you know, a requirement on the one who would be king that they had to be Protestant. Right. It started to get that way. And then they have the glorious revolution with William and Mary. That's when it was like, okay, mm -hmm. Protestant forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, you know, and just to be clear, this was just a change of headship. It wasn't a change of theology. Mm -mm. And so Henry himself, himself was still theologically Catholic, which is going to play a role here. But he inadvertently, this is just what's so crazy, he inadvertently started the English Reformation. Not for spiritual reasons like we've That's seen right. with some of these other people right. in other countries, but pretty much just because of personal interests and lust. But we've, <laughs> so. we've got to mention, too, that at the same time that all this is going on, you've got Martin Luther writing in Germany. You've mm -hmm. got, you know, the— Yeah, this is all going on at the same time, right, right. all overlapping. So that this is important because that will, that will come in because um, Germany is an influence on England. In fact, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the English are Germanic. That's where they get their roots. So there's always been that tie. So what goes on in Germany is very close to what is— it is going to influence England. Luther was trying to influence Henry after the act of supremacy. Like there, yeah, there was there was contact going on or sending emissaries, I guess, yes. people to kind of figure out, okay, feel it out. Mm -hmm. What kind of a reformation mm -hmm. is this? <laughs> and some of Martin Luther's um, writings had already been translated mm -hmm. and were already in circulation in England by this time. Yeah, this has been a few years now. So, mm -hmm. well, yeah, this is 1530. So, yeah, and the Reformation started in 1517. So, yeah, for sure. So, Anne, now getting to Anne's little personal story. Um, she was, like I said, kind of an enigmatic figure, um, not only because of her political role, but her spiritual role as well. So, kind of like what Cheryl mentioned before, there are people who say, say that she was just conventionally religious and politically ambitious. And then there's others who say, no, she played a major role in reform. And some of that incongruence, I guess you could say, um, has to do with the fact that this is still somewhat early stage Reformation. So everything's pretty fluid. And we've seen that, that there were a lot of people who believed in justification by faith, that believed that the scripture should have authority over the church. 
but they still kind of tolerated things that we would look back on and say, well, that's kind of conventional Catholic doctrine. So it wasn't always as cut and dry as we think. I mean, you got to, you know, put yourself in these people's shoes here. They're, it's a pretty radical transformation, and it's not going to just happen overnight, like, you know, with everybody. Even Luther himself. We've talked about that a lot. Yes. It was reform first. Right. And then a breakaway. Right. But so. at the same time that this is going on, too, you have Tyndale, who is translating the yeah. Bible. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of other dynamics Into going English. on in all of this. Mm -hmm. Yes. And Anne seems to have been one of these people kind of caught in the, like, just the transition here. And so we need to look at her actions, I think, really, to see that relationship with God and her attitude toward the Reformation. I think that speaks louder than other people's opinions about what she was doing. Her actions were pretty remarkable, because what we, what we find from a lot of contemporary accounts from that time was that she did take a real stand for the Reformation in England. So the Boleyn family was part of what they called the nouveau riche, like the, the new rich. So, you know, they didn't inherit necessarily from generations. They were kind of the young upstarts. Very ambitious family, wanted to advance themselves in Henry's court. I think that's one reason a lot of people denigrate the Boleyns. They didn't really like her dad, Thomas, a lot because he was always trying to pull strings and advance his family in kind of an egregious way. You know, and that was part of, you know, Mary, his daughter, you know, the, I think she was older than Anne, the one that became mm -hmm. Henry's mistress. All of this was trying to get in good, right, with the upper class. But honestly, we also have to consider that they were just typical of the nobility at that time. And there's a quote from uh, Telford, that one historian I read before, that um, gives a lot of perspective on these times. I think this helps us understand the way it was for these people and helps us hopefully appreciate Anne's position, she says, such self-seeking was not confined, confined to the lower levels of court life. Even the highest place, seemingly most fortunate families must always be aware that their position could easily be lost without constant striving on their part. There could be no qualms of conscience, no squeamish reluctance to perform an unpleasant duty or even accept an unattractive marriage partner. A fall from favor could be as quick as a rise, but a fall from favor could mean the failure of the entire family, not merely one individual. So there's a lot of pressure especially on these women. I mean, they're just pawns. We'll see that a lot when we look at um, Lady Jane Grey, just to give you a little teaser there. Oh my goodness. Yes. These women got put in these positions without any control or any say in the matter. And so it was it was really hard. I mean, it's like, gosh, the fate of our whole family rests on you. <laughs> Whether they like it or not, they're in these awkward marriages and situations. So this is the environment Anne is raised in as a Boleyn. But it is significant that her family also had embraced Luther's ideas early on, and that became a key distinction. And Anne herself was influenced by the Reformation because of her time in France, like we mentioned before, her exposure to French language and culture. Um, she was educated in the French royal court from ages 6 to 13, so for, you know, very formative years there. She was a lady-in-waiting to Marguerite de Navarre, one of our favorites we keep mentioning. <laughs> yes. Before the Reformation even broke out, and I think, Cheryl, you said she was um, friends with Renee France, right? Renee France. Well, Renee had gone to live with Marguerite. Oh, yes. That's after right. her mother's death, and they were raised in the same household. Yeah, Marguerite just, mm -hmm. like, had, mm -hmm. a, yeah, had a lot going on there. Yes, and Anne Boleyn had actually been a lady-in-waiting mm -hmm. for— um, Claude? Uh, Claude? Oh, okay. That, Claude as well. Um, okay, and Her Marguerite. sister. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's so cool. So that would have been uh, Renee France's older sister. Got it. She had been her lady-in-waiting. That's so cool. So Third time. Yeah, mm -hmm. so there's a lot of real strong, you know, right. solid influence on her life. Right, especially for Marguerite and Renee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So and probably Jean Navarre, too, because— Oh, you know, yeah. She's, yeah, Jean Delbray. Yeah, yeah, well, there we go. They're— <laughs> 
As she's the daughter. One big you know? Protestant yes. family. Okay. Yes. So um, because she loved all things French and really was impacted by that time there, and then later once the Reformation really took off, she was really impacted by the French branch of the Reformation, mm-hmm. the Huguenots, who we've talked about a lot. And she treasured her French Bible translations. She read French commentaries, the reformer reformist works by Jacques de Tapla. I've mentioned him before. Clement Moreau. I think I mentioned him too. They were pretty significant mm-hmm. refor- uh, Re- Reformation writers, and she loved their works. In fact, even before she got married to Henry, she was already trying to play a, a role in supporting and protecting uh, French Reformation sympathizers. There was a Huguenot named Nicholas Bourbon, who she rescued from being killed. Um, she also continued to promote the writings of de Toplin Moreau. And then once she got married to Henry, she figured like, sweet, now I have a position to do even more for the Reformation cause. Like I said at the beginning, that was how a lot of these women viewed their role. Like, okay, this is an appointed time by God. I'm raised up for such a time as this. Like Esther. Yes, exactly. And she really took that call seriously. So she helped establish a reformed-minded college under her chaplain, Matthew Parker. She protected one of Tyndale's sponsors. Like Cheryl mentioned, Tyndale is now working on his translation, getting that uh, published and trying to send it over into England. In fact, she was an avid reader of Tyndale's New Testament translation and really tried to go to bat for him with Henry um, and kind of intercede on his behalf and say, hey, Tyndale's a supporter. He's a friend. He's not an enemy. Um, Fun fact, her Tyndale Bible is actually in the British Library, so that's Mm. kind of fun. Um, And so it's interesting because even later biographers who were not sympathetic to Anne, they kind of had to admit that her actions showed her faith and her walk with God. This guy, Bishop Bernay in the 17th century, he said Anne devoted herself to good works and that in in her last nine months, she distributed between 14 and 15,000 pounds to the poor. That's a lot of money back then. Quite a bit. That's significant. And again, he's unsympathetic. He didn't even like Anne Boleyn, but you can't help but look at her life and admit, wow, she really was trying to do all she could for the Lord in that short time. And so she continued urging Henry to issue an English Bible translation. I mean, really doing all she could um, to further, further the cause. And so along with Archbishop Cranmer and then Chief Minister Thomas Cromwell, there's so many Thomases. Her dad was a Thomas. Then you said uh, uh, Thomas Wolsey. My goodness, these guys. Yes. <laughs> they just never end. So it's kind of hard when everybody has the same name back then. Hopefully you people, everybody's take, keeping track of this. Anyway. So Anne, uh, along with Cranmer and Cromwell, um, took advantage of the act of supremacy as an opportunity to kind of destroy a lot of the outward religiosity, some of the superstitious rituals of Catholicism in England. It was like, sweet. I mean, yes, Henry was still Catholic, but she would use her influence along with those two guys to kind of encourage him like, hey, why don't we make this more of an English church, you know, and get the Pope's influence in the monasteries out of here. And I think we need to say something real quick. The Catholic that you see today mm-hmm. was not like the Catholic that was mm. then. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Catholics now have a Bible, a common Bible that everyone yes, reads yes. and knows. But in those days, it had it hadn't anchored in the Bible. It was so far afield. Yes, and you know, those in England, they thought that casting spells and mm-hmm. you know many of the monks would cast yes, spells. A lot of superstition. So much superstition. So when we're talk about the Catholic Church. We're not talking about what you see today. We are talking about what it was um, during the the Tudor times. Yeah, coming out of the medieval mm-hmm. period. The when, medieval period. Yes, right. when everybody was 
like in ignorance, really, because the church wouldn't let them have the Bible in their own language. That's and right. so yeah. that made a, such a huge difference. Exactly. That's a great point to bring up here. And so they could see a lot of this stuff that was unbiblical in their country. Right. And because Henry, you know, is looking at, he's not a spiritual man, <laughs> in yes. case you couldn't tell. He looks at everything politically. So they played that angle. They're like, That's hey, right. why don't we make this proper English? You know, let's, this is England and we don't need the Pope's influence here. So they kind of played that up. So she actually and secured the appointment of a lot of evangelically minded bishops um, for the new Church of England. She supported a lot of Protestant publishers and authors. Uh, she also, and this was the sticky one, she promoted the the dissolution of England's monasteries. So let's dissolve the monasteries because that's a remnant of the Pope. That's a stronghold of the Pope. Let's get it out of here. And she uh, suggested, hey, why don't we divert those funds from the monasteries to other purposes like the relief of the poor. Let's take care of the poor. Like, let's just put this right back into the people. But Henry, again, went too far in that. And he yeah, saw he... <laughs> that as an opportunity to get all the money mm-hmm. of those, of those, ab- of those, you know, like the abbot, you know, and these places. And that's when you have something that's called the priest hole. Because he went so drastically against um, these monasteries, like, pulling them down in order to get the money that the priests would hide in these caves and have these secret rooms in people's oh, so. houses or in these places. And they were called the priest hole. Oh, right. And so uh, that's really well known in England. If you go there and yeah, you yeah. Know, the priest hole, um, that's a place where these priests and these monks um, had to hide because of um, the persecution that came against the Catholic It started Church. to get pretty gnarly. And that's what a lot of People blamed on Anne, and that's why she's not a popular figure. But that really was not Anne. That was Henry wanting money. That was all about greed. Oh, my goodness. And that's what ended up, yeah, ironically enough, this is what led to Anne's downfall because she wanted to use the money for the poor. Remember, like I said, even that biographer noted she gave so much money to the poor during her reign. And she encouraged Hugh Latimer, who was later executed for his faith, she encouraged him to preach about it before the king, like, hey, let's really push for using these this money the right way. And so, um, interestingly, her attack on the monasteries and desire to use the funds for the people really ruffled the feathers of, you know, the noblemen who, like Henry, they greedily just wanted the money and property for themselves. Why not? Let's cash in. And so mm-hmm. um, that actually apparently played a role in the conspiracy to have Anne overthrown. Right. Now, also, too, that the abbots did have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're beautiful. Yeah. I mean, these uh, palaces, churches, really. yes, they yeah. look like palaces. And the priests in England lived at that point lavishly. You know, mm-hmm. they had large homes. And and yeah. so there was this tension already there yeah. between uh, <sighs> it was yeah, it was it was pretty bad. And mm-hmm. so um, Anne's it's interesting. Anne's fall from favor with Henry was pretty sudden and dramatic in 1536, just three years after they had begotten, gotten married and she became queen. Cromwell, who was a sympathizer with her, a fellow Protestant sympathizer, suddenly turned against her. He told the Habsburg ambassador he was the one who had engineers engineered Anne's trial and execution, including false accusations of adultery and collusion which wasn't true, but he even claimed it. Like, yep, I'm the one who brought this about. And uh, Paul Zoll, historian, says that today, no one knows exactly why Cromwell did this, but another historian um, says the evidence suggests, if you follow the paper trail, uh, that Cromwell also wanted to use the monastic funds for his own purposes. So kind of sad. You know, Anne wasn't perfect, of course, but and her story is nuanced, but it really seems, especially in this case with the monastery funds, 
She had a much more righteous motivation than a lot of these other people did. And, and again, consider her boldness and courage in light of the family pressure here. She's supposed to be jockeying for position in the royal court, treading lightly to maintain it. And not to mention the fact that she hadn't produced a male heir yet, and that put her in hot water. You know, she'd had a daughter. That's about it. Um, so pretty remarkable that she was willing to stick her neck out like this. Well, part of it is so she gives birth to uh, a female heir, which is not a problem yet. Not yet. But not it yet. would become. But yeah. it will become a problem. Yes. So, so we're going to leave it there mm-hmm. at a cliffhanger. Yes. Because I want Jasmine to go a little more in depth on this. <laughs> and uh, so we're going to come back and we will see you next week with the rest of Amblin. And there is more. Yes, indeed. So if you have a story and I've started to get some stories in. I'm so excited. Two people have written in good, at good, least. Good. Yes. Oh, yeah. We have some other ones, too. Yes. And we want we're going to start featuring them. Um you know, who knows? You might be your story or the story you sent us might be featured with a tutor. Hey, how about that? That might be happening. <laughs> tutor, not a tutor, but a tutor. Tutor, these women, yes. <laughs> One of the women from England. So, again, if you do have a story, please write us at wwk at cccm.com. Lots of letters there, but we look forward to hearing from you. And until next week and more of Anne Boleyn, this is Cheryl and Jasmine saying thanks for joining us. That's right. Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.